recipe for resilience. This recipe has been tweaked over time, so adjust as necessary. Sometimes it yields more servings than anticipated. Sometimes it needs a bit more of this ingredient or that. It comes from generations who have gone before me and I've added my own flavor along the way. A recipe for resilience. One part courage, two parts tears of failure and doubt. One part deep listening, one part each of both silence and laughter. A dash of trust, a pinch of wonder, a heaping scoop of naps and snacks. In a separate bowl, mix together family, friends, and those who challenge you to be your best self, those with whom you disagree. And slowly to the larger pot, add a bay leaf for, well, whatever it is bay leaves do, and let simmer for as long as you need, which is often longer than you realize or anticipate. Keep the heat at an even temperature, hot enough to cook throughout, but not so hot that it burns the bottom. Can be served at room temperature, warm or even cold if necessary. Serve alongside your favorite soft blanket, dog, cat, or other soft item. Make often. Share with others. Hold on to the leftovers. You'll need them after a long day that challenges your soul.
Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Rajesh Vidyasaga. My pronouns are he, him, his. And I am so glad to see you here this morning, uh, whether you're in the room or following us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope you've got a blue name tag. I can see you do, so that we can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us. And we'd like to hear from you what you are looking for. We hope you join us after the platform for coffee and cookies in the uh, lobby and the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your uh, email with us on the gold sheet that can be found at the welcome table. You can drop off the sheet in the collection basket when it passes later in the platform service or hand it over at the desk outside. I want to invite you to check in on social media and then remind you to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present here with us today. Now I uh, invite Wayne and Johnny to read our statement of uh, purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. this one I think the Washington Ethical Society is a humanist congregation that affirms the worth of every person we strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit with faith in human goodness we appreciate each other's unique capacities we joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life we nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth we invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you. As uh, Wayne and Johnny uh, light our community candle, I invite you to all join with me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter 
future for all. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and to the world around us. Each week we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I'm particularly mindful of the one million Syrian refugees half of them children, caught between the advancing Syrian army and the closed Turkish border in the midst of winter. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I now invite you into a time of meditation. Before we begin, I want to say something about the focus on breathing during meditations. I mean, I've always wondered about that, uh, completely non-judgmentally, you know. Uh, so weird. <laughs> so I, I actually thought about it and I looked it up. I checked uh, a book and I finally found out what this was all about. Uh, why the breath, I asked myself, for instance, and why not some grand idea, some sort of lofty goal, some babbling brook or mysterious mountain or whatever, I finally found out that breathing is one of the guaranteed functions of the body that continues steadily throughout our lives, our healthy lives. In a world of uncertainty, it's the closest thing to certainty. It's often taken for granted. It's what I came into the world with. And it's pr probably the last thing to go before I pass on. It's life-giving, beautiful, and by regulating my breath, I can relax, refresh myself, and refocus my energies. So that's why breathing is such a part of meditation. So make yourselves comfortable in whatever way works for you. Settle your feet, close your eyes, or soften your gaze. Choose to focus on your breathing mindfully. Take in a deep, life-giving, precious breath. Fill your lungs, nourishing yourself. Hold. And then exhale slowly. And again. In. And then out. This is now. Between the past and the unfolding future. 
this is now. Breathe in and breathe out. Every intake of breath opens up new possibilities and relationships, opportunities for new beginnings, opportunities for quiet endings. Breathe in. Take in a breath, celebrate the resilience that you have shown in the most important relationships of your life. With a partner, with a child, with your friends, colleagues. Breathe in. every breath that you exhale, let go of toxic relationships. Let the bad air out. As you breathe in, go down the path of inner relationship that you never took. Open the door that you never opened. And enter the rose garden that you always knew lay beyond. Breathe in and breathe out. Think of new beginnings and happy endings. Breathe in and breathe out. This old house is falling down around my ears. I'm drowning in a river of my tears. When all my world is gone to hold me sway, I need you at the tipping of a Broken hearted souls, broken 
Resilience in relationships. Ever since I, uh, Laura asked me to partner with her in talking about resilience in relationships, I've been, thoughts been going on at the back of my mind. Honestly, I found it really hard to come up with something that would make sense or very meaningful. And then the other night, something really curious happened. Um, something that's kind of never happened to me before, which is that I actually remembered a dream. Now, I don't normally remember dreams. I mean, they just sort of vanish like a puff of thin air. But this time I did, and um, it was a little fragment. Of all the people in the world that I could be dreaming about, I dreamt of Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. Now, imagine that. In my dream, I saw him on the street, and uh, he looked disheveled and, and, and bedraggled. He was carrying a suitcase, and he told me he had nowhere to go. So could he stay at my house? And I said, of course, come. And he came over, and he stayed. And that's all I remember. And then when I woke up, I, it took me a little while to work things out. And as we all know, the archbishop led the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, after uh, South Africa became independent. And uh, this was set up to help deal with what had happened during apartheid. I wondered about what made it possible for a nation of black people to find themselves in this incredible space of generosity and forgiveness. 
train think about it? To be able to walk away from the shackles of the past to reforge a relationship with their former white aggressors, right? It takes an enormous, enormous shift in their thinking. Just how were they able to do it? The commission provided an opportunity for national catharsis through which people were able to redefine their history, to recenter the country, and to open a dialogue with each other. The commission helped people to actually begin to mend a deeply, deeply broken and flawed relationship. And uh, that's awesome, but how? It took me a while to connect this to resilience in relationships at the individual level. I don't know about you, but I've had many examples in my life when I know I should do something to repair a relationship, but I simply can't bring myself to do it. My past somehow holds me back. I know the, you know, the common thing to say is, oh, you know, forget about the past, let bygones be bygones, and all that sort of stuff. It's easier said than done, right? The fact is that the future is often mortgaged to the past and acts as an impediment to a future that we want to create for ourselves. And this is certainly true of relationships. I had not spoken with my cousins in decades. When we were growing up, we were pretty close, but when we were all young, they did some stuff that, I, that hurt me a lot and, 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 and treated me badly when I was feeling vulnerable. And I found it very difficult to forgive them. Now, in my mind, their badness acquired mythic proportions. I nursed my anger and I felt like a victim. And my differences spilled over onto other members of the family and both our families kind of had problems and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, a few years ago, I ran into them at a wedding. They had aged. So had I. And for the first time, I saw them really just as people. Not as villains in a story that I had created to protect myself. It didn't seem to matter anymore. And my story had lost its potency. I was free to make a different choice, which I did. And when my cousin passed away a week ago, I was really glad that I had reconnected with her. So some say that the past is immutable, cannot be changed, facts have happened, you can't reach back and change them. But consider this. Firstly, the really important facts are unknown to us because they are embedded deep in other people's minds. Throughout most of our lives, we act on incomplete uh, and sometimes inaccurate information. That aside, while the facts of the past might certainly be unchangeable or immutable, the past is held in the present moment by the meaning that we assign to it today. So while we may not be able to alter the facts, we can certainly give new meaning to them reinterpret them for ourselves. Because we certainly don't remember the past as facts. We remember them with emotion, with meaning, with narratives, 
and personal sagas which we attach to facts and knit them together. Sometimes these narratives are uplifting and positive and help us deepen intimacy and love. Sometimes they're defensive and self-protective and they can hold us back from engaging more deeply. When events take place in important relationships, particularly bad events, when we get hurt or feel damaged, we create narratives that help us along and ensure our physical and emotional survival. These narratives indeed can protect us from further harm, but they may also block us from doing what is in our own interest later. This is particularly true of relationships with parents and siblings, which are formed when we are much, much younger. And these have both positive and negative strands. Sometimes they're strong and positive and life-affirming. Sometimes they solidify into stories that block a more positive future in such relationships. Updating those stories in the cool light of current reality can give us opportunities to make different choices. And then to take the thinking a little further, resilience in relationships is only possible if we can build resilience inside ourselves. We can really make fresh choices, either to renegotiate frayed relationships or indeed to let go of toxic relationships that have lost meaning or are exploitative and harmful only if we are anchored, self-aware, and foster ourselves. There is huge potential in re-examining the stories that we tell ourselves about relationships and the assumptions that we make about each other. In the words of T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets, and I quote, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all, all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. I'd like to close by reading from another poem uh, by, by Eliot called Burnt Norton. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in the world of speculation. What might have been, what has been, point to one end which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take, towards the door that we never opened into the Rose Garden. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility 
only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage, which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the Rose Garden. This poem is so beautiful and it echoes what Rajesh said so perfectly that meaning is in the present. The past is held in the present moment by the meaning we assign to it today, he said. If all time is eternally present, what might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility, only in a world of speculation. There is so much power in thinking about meaning as living in the present. It's almost like meaning becomes a living, breathing, moldable thing. It's something we can add to our recipe for resilience, perhaps. Like maybe as we craft resilience in our relationships, we add a bit of meaning making and a little bit of truthfulness and a little bit of forgiveness. There's perhaps a dash of mindfulness and maybe a pinch of an ingredient called openness to mystery, that perpetual possibility Eliot mentions. One of my sisters is kind of famous in my family for telling stories that may or may not be totally true. Maybe it's because her imagination was particularly active as a young child, I'm not really sure, but our conversations are sometimes full of her memories. Like that time she was catching lightning bugs and fell in a prickly plant. In her mind, when she, she in her mind she fell into a prickly plant that was large enough to swallow her and we all remember it as a time she fell and her hand landed on a very small little plant that had very small prickles. She has another story about announcing she was going to do magic and extinguish a candle with her hand. She remembers touching the flame with her bare hand and not getting burned. And the rest of us remember the candle was fake. For my sister, these stories are about overcoming and the invincibility of childhood and very much about her personality as a child. And who are we to stop her? The past is held in the present moment by the meaning we assign to it today. We are making meaning in the present and this, apparently, is one of the ways she makes meaning. And of course we all do this, don't we? Maybe not about prickly plants and fake candles, but this is how we make meaning. We interpret and reinterpret and story the events of our lives. And to us, they are true, like capital T, true. Perhaps the only reason we don't ever question a particular story is because it never comes up against the story someone else tells. Author Brene Brown writes about the stories we tell ourselves. 
she tells a story about her husband going to the refrigerator, opening the door, sighing, and saying, we have no groceries, not even lunch meat. Brown snapped back at him, I know, I'm doing the best I can, you know, you can shop too. And her husband responded that he was aware and in fact frequently goes grocery shopping and asked, what's going on? Brown reflected and responded, the story I'm making up is that you were blaming me for not having groceries, that I was screwing up. No, he responded, I was going to shop yesterday but didn't have time. I'm not blaming you, I'm hungry. The story I'm making up is that you were blaming me. Brown believes these five words are critical to facilitating resilience in relationships. The story I'm making up. When we use these words, we're communicating to the other person, this is how I'm interpreting our interaction. However, I am, maybe begrudgingly or tentatively, leaving room for your interpretation. Or maybe we're saying, this is how I'm understanding what's happening right now, but I'm willing to acknowledge that this is the meaning I am making in the moment. It takes honesty and courage and vulnerability to be able to tell those stories. Often, those stories are the ones that are at the heart of what Brown calls our shame stories. The story I'm making up, we're saying, is that you're telling me I'm not good enough, that you're embarrassed by me, that I'm somehow wrong or bad or disappointing. When we acknowledge those stories we tell ourselves, we're able to take back some of the power of the story. Brown writes, storytelling helps us, helps us all impose order on chaos. When we're in pain, we create a narrative to help us make sense of it. The story doesn't have to be based on any real information. One dismissive glance from a coworker can instantly, can instantly turn into, I knew she didn't like me. She says, I responded to Steve, her partner, so defensively because when I'm in doubt, the I'm not enough explanation is often the first thing I grab. It's like my comfy jeans. They may not be flattering, but they're familiar. Our stories are also about self-protection. She says, I told Steve, I told myself Steve was blaming me so I could be mad instead of admitting that I was vulnerable or afraid of feeling inadequate. I could disengage from the tougher stuff. But this unconscious storytelling leaves us stuck. We keep tripping over the same issues and after we fall, we find it hard to get back up again. Brown says, in my research on shame and vulnerability, I've also learned a lot about resilience. The good news is that we can rewrite these stories. We just have to be brave enough to reckon with our deepest emotions. 
we can't chart a new course until we find out where we are and how we came to that point and where we want to go. When you reckon with emotion, you can change your narrative. You have to acknowledge your feelings and get curious about the story behind them. Then you can challenge those confabulations and get to the truth. To facilitate the development of our resilience, we have to develop a tolerance for discomfort. We have to get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable to acknowledge what is happening or what has happened and make meaning from it, we have to be curious about what we are actually thinking and feeling. Brown says, resilience is more available to people curious about their own line of thinking and behaving. So when something difficult happens, when our partner comments on the lack of food in the fridge or our, co our coworker gives us a look, or our boss sends us an ambiguous email, we have an emotional response and we create a story about it. If we can get curious about the feeling, notice it as just a feeling, a, res a, a response to a stimulus like any other stimuli, then we can respond differently, perhaps in a way that facilitates greater awareness. The good news, though, as with everything, is that we don't do this work of facing facts, making meaning, and building resilience alone. The point is, I think, that we do this work in community. We do it in relationship. We can create meaning individually, but it will be full of our story. My sister never would have known that she did not actually fall into an enormous prickly plant if she did not share that story. But she shared it and she heard others' interpretations about it and her view of the incident herself and the world was complicated. When Brene Brown shared the story in her head with her partner, she was able to unpack a shame story she was carrying. When we share a story or a truth, we bring it into the present and make new meaning. Time present and time past are perhaps both present in time future, Eliot wrote. One of the really beautiful things is that this isn't just limited to one-on-one -on -one individual relationships. This is also true of the work we do in larger communities. We create meaning here, in the present, together. On her blog, author Adrienne Marie Brown wrote a post entitled, A Range of Reflections on Resilience. She wrote this post the day after the last presidential election, and it is a beautiful, heartbreaking list of what she did that day. In it, she writes, I connected with others. I reached out to loved ones and we texted and wrote pieces and called and FaceTimed and hugged our way through the day. Sometime mid-afternoon, several of us noted a feeling of focus, a sharpening of our work. We carry it on. 
got together with others tonight and generated resilience. It was a simple evening, sharing our fears, reminding ourselves that fear is an intelligence, a sign to be more alert. Then we shifted to remembering what helps us recover from pain and trauma. There was a lot of expanding. Galaxies, oceans, trees, stillness, rocking, laughter, song. We, especially, those of us who feel more overtly vulnerable today than yesterday, need each other. We generate resilience in community when we gather together and share our fears, share our hopes, and share our lives. And this, perhaps, is what all of nature does and asks us to do. In another post, this one from November 2019, Adrienne Marie Brown writes, at each level, our natural world teaches us to build teaches us that we build the resilience by building relationships, proliferating aligned differences. We need to harness the most successful strategies of the natural world, the symbiotic biodiversity, the interdependent fecundity, the abundance mindset of mushrooms and dandelions, the shape-shifting adaptation of multi-sexed frogs, the collaborative pheromonal effort of ants, the iterative beauty of ferns and deltas and galaxies. I love that last line, the iterative beauty of ferns and deltas and galaxies. I think maybe that's what we do for one another. We help each other create an iterative beauty like the beauty of ferns and deltas and galaxies by telling and then rediscovering and recrafting the meaning in the stories of our lives. We craft our recipes for resilience, adding in curiosity and community, stories that are almost true, stories we have unpacked to find the truth, meaning that we make and then remake, and then make again. Maybe we add galaxies and oceans and trees, stillness, rocking, laughter, and song to our recipe. In my recipe, I add you and me and all of us because we make the meaning here now in this moment. And maybe that is ultimately what we'll see us through. was one as we sailed into the misty 
Let your soul and spirit fly as you sail into the mystic. When that lonesome fog won't blow, you know I will be coming home. So this is the time when we add our own voices this morning, sharing our reflections on the platform and what resonates with our own lives. I invite you to raise your hand and begin with your name. You might like to share a glimpse of a relationship in your life that 